Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia. I'm a 20-year-old loan officer from California. I started this podcast back in April 2020. Got furloughed from my job for about three months. And during those three months, I was very honest with myself. I was like, we can either start emotionally eating. We can start suppressing these feelings of not feeling worthy because you've lost this thing that you attach so much of your identity to. Or we could start that podcast that you've always been wanting to start. So I decided to go with that second option and I'm so glad I did. I've interviewed over 130 people since then. It's been incredible. I've got to interview music artists and seven-figure entrepreneurs and just all these incredible people with different stories and different ways of how they got to where they are and just hearing about their journey, hearing about their shit show moments because we all have shit show moments and just learning how to navigate them better and learning how to learn from them and take them and create something magical out of them. And I'm so glad that I get to interview all these incredible people and I am such a big believer that you can radically change your life in a year. You can just radically change your circumstances, where you're at. And I remember being 19 and just trying to get a job and applying to like, I was applying to Ross and like a smoothie bar and like all these places wouldn't take me. And I was like, so offended. I was like, why is no one taking me? And then I finally passed my NMLS test. And then I got a job with a major mortgage company. And I was like, oh, that's why they didn't take me. Cause I was meant to go down and get this job instead of that job. And I went from being 19 with $0 in my bank account and just being so stressed about money and so stressed about like is it gonna come into my life do I what am I gonna do about this to being 20 year old with over 60 grand in savings and I think one of the big changes that I made between those two was even when I had zero in the savings account I still believed that I was abundant I still believed that money was gonna flow into my life I still believed in something that I couldn't see at the time because I knew it was just a matter of time before it was gonna come so I'm such a huge believer and you can radically change your scenario you can step into that next version of you and that next version of you that higher self version of you she's not that far away as you think i think she's just there's just garbage in the way and it's just undercovering that garbage that's in the way of you getting to her and just stepping into that and the next version of you with the next level of results it's something i'm super passionate about and i hope from this podcast that you get to hear these stories and relate with these people and just relate with like not necessarily like just reconnecting to that path of what you want to do and reconnecting to that higher version of you and what you wanted to be when you were younger and what lights you up and what brings you joy so i'm so excited for you guys to hear these episodes would love to connect with you on instagram my instagram's the shit show my 20s dm me and love to have a conversation and feel free to share this with someone you know will love it and you can also leave a review on itunes i would love that Today's guest is Jen. I love chatting with her. We talked about how she started her nonprofit, how she got into dancing, how dancing has changed her life, the injury she went through, and how she was able to recover and start dancing again. We go into reinvention, and if you want to reinvent yourself, how you can start to do that, and so much more. So excited for you guys to hear this episode. Let's get started. So thank you so much, Jen, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Love to start with your 20s. Tell me what happened in your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments. Let's start there. Uh, I got so many. I've got so many. Because uh, when I think about my 20s, I think about my my first real big leap of faith moment. I, I have my degree in insurance and risk management, which is not something I think that most people are like, I'm going to go to school for insurance. Like, I'm not sure that, that those people exist. 
we end up there. But, and I always wanted to be a dancer. That I would become a starving artist. I mean, the moment you start speaking about being the artist, oh, so you want to be a starving artist. No, I don't want to be a starving artist. I let that matter what I chose in college. I danced uh, on the side. I was on the dance team and I did musical theater on the side. And I really tried to force myself into the square peg of a person who has a job who also has hobbies so that my job would be completely separate from my hobbies because I would do the smart thing and I would get a degree in business and I could just dance on the side. And I knew at the time that it was going against what I really wanted to do, but I felt the pressure in my 20s of doing what I should do, you know, doing the thing that most people expect you to do. And you, you got a degree in business, how, you know, how would you not use it? So I'm in insurance and I, I mean, I don't, I don't love my job. And I kept asking to be kind of put in towards human resources so that I could work with people because I've also, also loved teaching. So I love dance and I love teaching. I know these things about me. And they kept putting me back into insurance underwriting side, which was just so, bleh, so dull. I could stab my eyes out with a spoon. I was so bored. And I just felt like this, you know, this isn't, they're not listening to me. I'm asking them, I'm tasking what I want. I, I don't feel like my voice is being heard. Like, how long am I going to stay here? And I stayed, I felt longer than I should, but I was also looking around at my managers who were maybe five, 10 years older than me, feeling stuck, feeling like they had no choice. Feel like, you know, I've got a family now, so I would, I would love to do something else, but I can't. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't want that to be me. And when my job transferred me to a new city, I didn't know anyone and I'm not really a, a bar kind of person. So I was like, how am I supposed to meet people? And I started ballroom dancing on the side, just picking up, you know, I don't, like I said, I'd always done some sort of dance. I'd never done ballroom dancing. And I was like, oh, this is fun. And I ended up spending more time like all of my free time in the dance studio. Didn't, I didn't care what level the class was. I would just be there. If I was repeating something, I didn't care. I just loved the atmosphere of it. I loved being in the environment when new people were there. I loved to like welcome them in and help them out. And they were finally like, um, so do you want a job here? <laughs> kind of already doing this. And I was like, oh, wow. Imagine that like, oh, wow. I could actually be a dance teacher full time. Like oh, it's, it's finally coming true. But then I had this real fear of, yeah, but I got a degree in insurance and I'm working in, I have a, you know, a nice, comfortable salary, a very clear career path ahead, but I'm miserable and I have migraines and I had a stomach ulcer and I'm like, how do I, like, I know what I want to do. My heart is like, let's go. But my head is like, well, is that really what you should be doing? And I remember I called my dad and my dad's very steadfast. You know, one job, you stay with the same employer, uh, career military as well. So, you know, not a lot of job hopping around. And I was so afraid of what he would say. I was afraid of letting down my parents too, of, you know, all this time he spent in college, you're just going to leave it for a dance. And my dad really surprised me. And he said, do you know how rare it is to find a job that you love? You should go for it. And I was like, who's this man? Put my dad back on the phone. And I was so surprised. Like, you know, one of those fears, like letting down my parents, you know, but, but, but they were like, yeah, let's go for it. So I took a huge pay cut, moved into a cheaper apartment and I just loved what I was doing. Like I, I finally got to dance. And then when I thought about the whole big picture of it is that running a dance studio is business. Like it's still business. I can still apply my business background. And because of my business background, I have something to relate with almost every student that walks through that door. You know, someone that like, and somebody who works in a corporate America. Yeah, I understand what that life is like. You're trying to get some stress relief by taking dance lessons. I 1000% get it. 
And I felt just so grateful. And when I look back on that period of my time, my health was, was really great. You know, I loved what I was doing and, you know, it was a really brave moment, I think, to leave behind security, stable income, reliability to do something in the arts. So that's my, it's my biggest, like, yay me in my twenties for taking this huge leap of faith. And besides your dad, is there anything else that you think really helped you with that leap of faith? I've always had this kind of fear of regret. There's a line from musical Rent, forget, regret, or life is yours to miss. And from even from other subsequent leaps of faith that I've taken, that is always kind of my driving force. I don't know where I got that. I'm sure that it all comes from different family members who have done different things, who have inspired me in that way. But there's this nagging feeling of, I don't want to wonder what if. I would rather try and fail then wonder, then stay, stay small. You know, that's, that's the kind of regret that I can't, I can't seem, I can't seem to live with. Did you ever have anything in your ego come up when you took that huge pay cut, like going from making that amount to making less? Is there any ego stuff that came up for you? In the moment? No. But there were definitely times when I would look back, if I would get really down on myself for, you know, struggling with the bills or something of like, well, this is what you get. This is what you get. You took a risk and you know, because your degrees in risk management, a high risk can come with high reward, but it can also come with, I mean, that's the risk is embedded into it. So, I mean, that's a whole separate talk about how you talk to yourself you know, especially in times when you're, when you're down. So there's certainly that piece of it, but I really, especially in my twenties, I'm not sure I really grasp the concept of gratitude as gratitude, what we, what we call it. But I, I definitely felt so grateful that anytime anybody would buy lessons from me, I would immediately write them a thank you letter because I felt so grateful that someone would pay to spend time with me to teach them something like, like I can't physically give you a piece of cha-cha. <laughs> I can't physically give you tango, but I can spend time with you and we can work on it and we can laugh and we can dance is always like this vehicle that gets you somewhere else. Some people want to become good dancers just to become good dancers, but most people are looking for some sort of stress relief or a way to kind of break out of their shell. And I get to accompany them on that journey as a dance teacher. And I just felt like what a so full that people would invest their time and money in me to take them there. And so I'd be writing these thank you notes, be like, oh, thank you. And I remember the guy I was dating at the time, he thought, first of all, he thought it was a really bad decision, very stupid decision, very unwise, very selfish decision, which caused a big riff in our relationship. And he was like, I can't believe you're writing those letters. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so grateful. And I would, I could tell you all the details about my students. And he was like, it's such a ploy. You're just trying to get them to buy more. And I was like, like rage, like, how dare you? And I mean, if that was definitely like kind of the crack between between us and he's a fine person he's a wonderful person and we just our journeys had to go in separate ways because I also couldn't stay in a relationship where I felt like someone didn't understand me or didn't value my happiness in that way so that was a it was another big like oh you really have to make a decision here because all of my friends are in these relationships everybody is you know late 20s everybody's getting married everybody started about talking about planning a family and all of these things and you're talking about dancing like this seems so this is not what everybody else is doing and what's something that dancing has taught you so much there's so much I will say dancing oh 
dancing is like being transported to another world. You don't have to speak the same language as the other person across from you. Dance is a language in and of itself. So you and I don't even have to speak to start to communicate. There's, especially in partner dancing, there's a give and a take. There's an ask and a request and someone taking it back. Like I ask you to make a turn, oblige and make a turn. Like there's a, there's a whole thing going on. There's this transfer of energy and you know what you can't think about? Your troubles, what's going on else in the world, all the stress that brought you to that moment is all gone in that moment that you're dancing. If you're somewhere, if your brain is somewhere else, the dance isn't going to be good. The connection's not good. Both of you are going to leave disappointed. So it's a really magical way of dropping into the present moment. And people always talk about like, be here, be here now. I don't know what that means. And then I'm like, oh wait, I actually do know exactly what that means. Time stands still. Time is irrelevant. And I can come in to dance with a massive headache or being angry or being something and all the stress has bothered me. And in two minutes, it can be gone. It's magic. It's really magic. And do you have a favorite style of dancing? Uh, (laughs) And whatever music is playing, that tends to be my favorite style. Like there's in the ballroom world, there's tends to be kind of two, there's a ballroom kind of dances, foxtrot, waltz, tango. And then there's like the Latin side of dancing with salsa and cha-cha, mambo, things like that. And I love them both. There's an old school part of me that loves Frank Sinatra music and loves the whole big band era. So I love foxtrot and like the dresses are very elegant and long and flowy. And it's such a very feminine spot to be. But then the Latin dances that kind of get to the spicy side of you. You know, it's like fun and it's fast and it's flirty and it's also super sparkly costumes which as you know if I see something sparkly I'm completely lost so the costume maybe is fun like it's just the music kind of it's it's a really fascinating thing how music brings out an emotion and then through dance you express that emotion do you think anyone can be a dancer yes yes one thousand percent whether you judge yourself for whether you're a good dancer or not is worthless that's exercise in futility. Look at babies, right? You put on music and like their whole body just kind of moves. It doesn't move in any order. You don't go, oh, baby, you didn't start on the, on the one. <laughs> you're, not, you're not bouncing your bum in time. No one does that. And we laugh and we love it, right? Have you ever seen a video of a baby dancing that you're like, ew? No, we love that. So why, why people somehow, somewhere along the line, somebody has judged somebody as not a good dancer and they shut that part of them down. Dance is inherent to, I believe, who we are as human beings. Just like beats and music, dancing is the next part of it. You stomp your feet. It is both percussion and music, but it's also dancing. And do you have people come to you, like clients come to you who have the limiting belief of I'm not a dancer? Oh, yeah. How do you help them work through it? I was in a ton of, a ton of people actually. And I, I especially have like a, a grievance against all of the girls who told boys that they were bad dancers. As a female dance teacher, I'm mostly working with men and couples, right? So most of my clients throughout the whole, my teaching career have been men and couples. So when I'm working with the guys, they're like, I can't dance. That's why I'm here. And I'm like, that's not true. I'm glad you are here and let's keep moving on. So your role as a teacher is to like, you're not placating anybody. You're just honestly acknowledging how far that they they've come and everybody's on their own path. Everybody takes their own amount of time and everybody's version of success is different. You know, somebody might want to learn because they're going to a wedding and they really want to show off. Well, that's that person's measure of success. Somebody else might want to just like there it's an empty nest and they want to get out and meet people 
that's their measure of success. So putting whatever I might think it should be is a complete disservice to my clients, to my students. So I think it's always really important to not only ask them at the beginning, like, why are you here? Besides how to learn how to dance, why else are you here? Are you feeling shy and you're hoping dance will help you overcome that? Do you want to be on Dancing with the Stars? Like, where, where are we? And then it's my job to figure out and plan a course to help you get there. And then to also continue to check in with you along the way, because things change, goals change, people change, right? You might, I mean, they might be like me, where I started out, it was, it was just a hobby to meet other people. And because I didn't want to be in bars and I don't know anybody and I wanted to have something outside of work. And then it became a passion. And then, you know, and then it became a whole different thing. So if people hadn't checked in with me, you know, I'd still be like, hey, I kind of want to do more. So good teachers, I think, check in and make sure that like, that's, that's your job as a teacher is to guide them. And your clients, if there's one thing that you could teach them when they come into your dance studio, what would you want that to be? To turn off their head trash, to turn off that internal voice and just be here, just be here. Fear will stop you more than anything else in the world will your fear of being judged, your fear of I'm not good enough, whatever those negative things that, I mean, we all say to ourselves at some point, they will stop you. And if you can do it in dance, I bet you can do it somewhere else. And how has the pivot look like for you right now during COVID? Are you doing like Zoom classes? What's going on right now? Um, I have an autoimmune disease, so I'm staying away from people (laughs) in general. And I haven't done any dance teaching online or, or via Zoom. A part of it is just where where my my apartment is and how it's set up is a, a little bit a little bit awkward for that. So I'm more waiting for things to come back to be able to go back into dance. But I'm still definitely cheering on all the people who are who are teaching and who are doing virtual teaching. And I <laughs> I dance in my living room literally every day. I have an alarm set on my phone in the afternoon to make sure that I get up from my desk and have a, a dance party for one in my living room with whatever happens to be playing. And can you go into your charity and what inspired you to start it? Sure, absolutely. I, during my ballroom dance world, I I used to travel and compete and I would compete with my students on some weekends. I'd compete with my partner on other weekends. And during one of my competitions, I fell and I injured my spine and I ended out out of work for five years. And I had... Uh, multiple surgeries to try to rehab and ended up having some nerves in my spine cauterized and burned off just so that I could stop feeling the pain. And it was a really, it was a really, really painful physical and emotional time for me because, you know, in my twenties, I left the certain thing. I left the, the certain job to do this thing that I felt was like my passion and my calling and my purpose. And now it was gone. You know, my doctors were telling me to, you know, time to find a new hobby. And I was like, mm, this isn't my hobby. This is my life now. P.S. Any doctor who told me that I fired. So you got to be on my team. If you're going to be on my medical team, you literally have to be on my side. So I spent five years rehabbing, recovering. And when I felt well enough that I could get by on my own again, I was like, I'm, I'm done with the East Coast. I'm so, and I was honestly, I was so afraid of slipping and falling on the ice and reversing all of this damage. I, I mean, there was a, a long period of time where I just felt really afraid to have people near me. So I didn't even want dancing in my life for a long period of time because my spine, everything hurt so bad. Eggs would go numb after like 10, 15 minutes of sitting. I was just in constant physical pain for so long that I didn't want to 
dance. I didn't want people around me. I was so afraid of everybody even touching me, like in reversing any of my, all this progress that I had made. And then it included slipping and falling on the ice, which I did at one point. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm moving to Southern California. I never want to see snow again. And most everybody in my family knows once I get an idea in my head, I'm going through with it. It goes back to that whole forget regret thing. Like I have to go out there. I have to figure out if this is going to work. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I'll do something else, but I can't live with the regret of not knowing. So I moved out here to San Diego and the one thing I knew is that I wasn't going to teach dance. So the first job I got was teaching dance. But I I, uh, I happened to move down the street from a studio that was owned by Mary Murphy from So You Think You Can Dance. And I was a huge, huge fan of the show. And I went to her studio literally just to dance for the night because just like I had like in Pittsburgh, I needed to meet people, but I'm not going to go to a bar. How am I going to meet people? I'm going to dance. And I was like, that'll be exciting. I'm sure she's not there. She was there. Long story short is that she offered me a job at the end of that night. And I was like, what? This is crazy. I said I wasn't going to dance, but it's Mary Murphy. I'm not turning that job down. And then she asked me during my interview if I'd be interested in going out to a military base. There's a, the military naval hospital in San Diego. And she said, in just six weeks, they want to do a salsa class for the, there's some wounded warriors who had lost one or more limbs in combat and their physical therapist, incredible dancer, but not a dance teacher. So he wanted someone to come out and and teach them. And he was working with just some dance steps. They'd been fitted with their prosthetics. They could walk, they could run, like, why not dance? So I was like, yes. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. I want, I, I want to do that. And because, you know, my dad's an Air Force vet. My grandfather was, was a World War II pilot, like of a very strong military background within my family. So I was like so excited at the opportunity. And I was telling everybody I knew like, oh, I can't wait to start this thing. And when I got in there, it was even bigger than I could imagine and that I could fathom at the time. You know, I've got seven guys. And at the time it was all men because there was all combat injured because we were, it was 2010. So we were still definitely involved in both wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so these were combat injured veterans and to watch them laugh and to watch them smile and to joke around with each other. And I was like, you know, the goal of the program initially, like my purpose coming in was to help them work on balance, coordination, lateral movement, all very physical therapy focused. But having gone through my own experience with a physical injury and the emotional side of the physical injury, I was also like noticing like, but like, look at this guy who came in here all pissed off. And now he's laughing and joking. And these people who were quiet and would not say a word to me or make eye contact with me are now giving me a hug before they leave class and tell me they can't wait to come back next week. I was like, so like little wheels started to spin, even though I wasn't really aware of what was going on. And the gentleman, his name is Mike Podlensky, amazing physical therapist. You know, we started talking about like, there's so much, there's more going on here than just the physical part. And then one of the guys asked if he could bring his wife to the last class. And my first reaction was like, are you kidding me? You've had a built-in partner this whole time. And I've been trying to find volunteers as dance partners. You've had a built-in partner this whole time. And he was like, yeah, but I wanted to be good enough. You know, I wanted to like, uh, you know, be, had know something before she came in. I didn't want to embarrass myself. I was like, okay, that's cute. But also I was like, of course, like, of course she can come. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
of course. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait, why aren't all the spouses here? Okay, cool. So she came the next week and she was like dressed to the nines, hair done, makeup done. She was like, she was this like beaming light that came in and they brought their three kids with them. And throughout the whole dance lesson, they're like, daddy, daddy. And that was just so super cute. And then seeing them, watching them connecting and like laughing. And usually I make people switch partners, but I didn't make them switch. Like it was just so sweet to watch them together. And then at the end of class, she came up to me crying and I panicked. I was like, oh God, we've done something to injure her husband. He's not, oh, what, what happened? What's happening? What's happening? And she's like, I haven't danced with him since our wedding. And I was like, oh, good. Then my tears started and she said, no one has ever asked me to be part of his therapy before. I drive him to his, to it. Oh, I'm going to get emotional. I drive him to and from his appointments, but I sit and I wait for him. And you're the first ones who's allowed me to like be part of this. And I just, I mean, this was, this was 11 years ago and it still hits me this hard that I was like, this is so much more than physical therapy. Like, and it was like fireworks going off in my head of like, like pay attention. This is huge. This is huge. And I thought like, God, what a gift I've been given of this opportunity to teach these men and women that kind of that same parallel is where I felt when I first started teaching ballroom dance lessons. Like I just felt so grateful that I've been given this opportunity to teach this class and that I don't, I'm never going to understand what it's like to lose a limb in combat. I'm not never going to compare my spinal injury from a ballroom dance competition to someone who had their limb blown off from an IED. But I do understand constant physical pain. And I do understand the emotional component that goes along with that of not only just the mental stress of being in pain, pain, but losing your job, losing a dream, losing a career. I mean, these are some of the, some of the people I worked with, they thought they were going to be in the military forever. Their father was, their grandfather was like, they're coming from a long line of military veterans. And now in their twenties, they're being medically retired and told to find something new. Like I, I don't, I can't walk in their boots, but I can definitely empathize with how they're feeling. So I thought, oh, like if I had to go through what I went through in order to have the compassion and empathy to create this program for them, then I guess it must've been worth it. Like, I guess that's, that was part of the purpose of my journey in life was that to go through that, to be able to do this. So I took that six week class and the long story long is that six week program turned into a seven and a half year run of a nonprofit. We had 24 classes going throughout the United States. By the time it ended, we sponsored Salsa Night in Afghanistan. We were invited to a White House summit to talk about how dance as an adaptive therapy was working to help female veterans of military sexual trauma, to be able to trust someone again, to be able to go out, you know, be in public again, to be in the presence of the opposite sex again, to do, there's so much that was just happening that we were, I mean, what an incredible opportunity that I was given. And I don't know if I would have had the motivation. I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, but the, the wherewithal to create something if I hadn't gone through what I went through. So it was called Soldiers Who Salsa. Unfortunately, it's no longer around. Nonprofits are very tough. <laughs> Nonprofits are uh, real heavy on the non side of profit. So they constantly need money and fundraising. And that was just something that was really difficult to keep up. And I also got really sick during close to the end of it, I took on a lot of stress, a lot of it self-imposed. We can talk about boundaries and what it means to be an entrepreneur in, in that realm of it. I got really sick. I got pneumonia six times in a year. 
I had to resign to take a medical leave of absence. And then eventually, even after hiring my replacement, they just couldn't keep it going. So it had to close. And I went through a whole nother depressive episode of like losing something that I created that I cared so much about, but coming to terms with the fact that even if it ended, I'm glad I took the risk. I'm glad I, there's not the regret of not trying because I could have easily stuck to one class and left it at six weeks and gone off and taken a regular job. I mean, I even had a regular job lined up, ready to go. And they made me choose between this volunteer thing I was doing one hour, one day a week or their full-time job. And there was just something about it. Again, I got that like pull of like, this is where you're supposed to go. Pay attention. So I took that leap of faith and started a charity. Can we go back to when you got injured and while you were recovering, how did you keep on connected to and stay connected to your faith and connected to, even though right now I'm injured, eventually I'm going to dance again. Like this is just a temporary thing. Really good question. Cause for a long period of time, I wasn't there. I, I probably, I went into the now looking back second, most depressed time of my life during that injury. And because it was I like, I had a constant reminder that I wasn't going to dance because of the physical pain and, you know, like waking up one of the surgeries I had to have, I had to be awake for. So when they hit the nerve that was causing me pain, then they could cut it. So I like to be awake during a surgery where they're intentionally going to cause you pain. Oh, that was, it was terrifying. And I woke up for months later, re re experiencing that pain. Like it's something that I've learned actually from once I did the charity, something called phantom pain, which I hadn't heard of before. But to, to get back to what you were asking, like, I'm very fortunate that I have incredible family members and friends who loved me back to health and loved me back to my feet. My, I mean, my parents lived three hours away, but they would take turns coming down and taking care of me and staying with me. My best friend flew in from Atlanta to cook for me for a week and rearrange my kitchen in a way that I wouldn't have to reach for heavy objects anymore. And made up, she knew I was, I was vegan and she was, she made a whole cookbook for me. She, she bought a walk while she was there, like just rearranged everything. My other best friend, we had, I had this uh, zero gravity recliner, which is the, like the only chair I could sit in where I wouldn't be in pain. And she was like, we're going, we're going to the movies. And I was like, cool, have a good time. She's like, no, we means we, you too. And I'm like, no, I'm not. So like, I was just depressed. I didn't want anybody around me. You know, it's just always, and she's like, well, I'm packing up your chair, get in the car. And she would, God love her. She would take me, take me to the movie theater. She would set up my big old recliner in the, uh, it's like a folding lawn chair kind of looking thing. She'd set it up in the handicap section and she'd be like, I'll keep people away from you, but we're going out. And, you know, my cousins would come over and visit and hang out with me. And they kept me, they kept me from going completely under because it got really dark. And there were times when I just really wanted Wanted to, I felt like I was at the end of my rope and that felt easier to let go than it did to hold on. And the complimentary piece to that was I also found this thing called equine facilitated psychotherapy, which I'd never heard of before. And I love horses, but literally you feel the horses and a therapist. And I was like, if, cause I had to see a psychiatrist and honestly, by that time I certainly needed one, but being in a little box of a room already, when I felt like I was trying to like keep people away, like I was like, this isn't helping me. I didn't feel like I was making any progress. And I was just getting angrier and angrier that I asked if I could switch to this kind of therapy and like being out in the open in a field of horses, it was so calming and 
if I came in with like a tense, angry level of energy, these horses, because they're therapy horses, would walk as far away from me as possible. Like horses, like most animals, pick up on your energy, especially these trained horses. So I'd be like angry, mad, sad, depressed, and coming in with super, super negative vibes. And I'd walk into this, you know, this ginormous pasture. They're all there right at the gate. I'd start talking to my therapist and be like, I, 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 I. and the horse would be like, peace out. <laughs> and they'd, they'd go as far away from me as possible. And I was like, what? what's happening? She's like, you have to learn how to control your energy. You got to learn how to, you know, take, take control of your emotion. We have to figure out how can you calm down? Like, what can you do? How can you do that? Because when you do that, they will come back. And I'm like, like, ah, like, I thought that sounded like a bunch of hippy dippy weirdness, but it worked and it worked every time. And anytime I would be going through, you know, something, trying to work through something, it really helped bring me back. And I just so, again, just so grateful that I happened to pick up an article and read about it and find a barn 20 minutes from me where I could do it. And I, I loved it. That was a huge, to me, that was a huge part of my healing journey to keep me back on track and be okay with whether I dance or not, I'm still, I'm still okay. And I think part of my challenge has always been when what I work on now, what I, the work that I do now in, in coaching people is I tied up so much of my value and my identity and my worth as a, as a person with my work in my job. And if I wasn't a dancer, I didn't know who I was. And same thing with my charity. If I wasn't the this executive director, I didn't know who I was. All of my self-worth was tied into what I did for a living versus who I was as a person. Like d- just because dance is, is gone, doesn't mean I can't still teach. Doesn't mean I still have, don't, I didn't lose the ability to connect with another person. You know, I didn't, I lost some things, but the me, the core that's me inside that hasn't lost. And that's what I had to work on. How did you Sorry, detach- I know I just went on like a thousand tangents. No, it's good. And how did you detach yourself from those titles? A ton, a ton of work, a ton, ton, ton of work, ton of therapy. It's a lot of self-work. When, when the charity was closing and I felt, again, this is where I got into like worst depression, worse even than the back injury part. Um, and I think, I think it felt worse because I took a bigger risk to start that charity. So the crash was, was harder like a bigger distance to fall. I felt I had failed because if I couldn't keep enough, have enough money to keep the thing going, then I failed. And I couldn't separate in my head, failing at a task, fundraising, grant writing, whatever that is, versus I am a failure. And when I realized that I was kind of in the same place again, where I felt lost, I didn't know who I was. And when I could put piece together like you've been here before you this is exactly how you felt when you lost your dance career now you've lost your nonprofit career like you've lost that and you feel so lost because you put all of your worth into this you got to figure out how these two things are separate and there was a course that I took in sales of all places where they talked about separating the roles from your identity the roles that you take on and we all have you know hundreds of hats that we wear you know like I'm a daughter that's a role I play so I think of it as if I were writing a one person play uh, or one act play about myself and I was the only star, how many different characters would I have to write? How many different hats would I have to put on? You know, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister-in-law. I'm a teacher. I'm a, all of these roles that I play. When I'm at my best in those roles, who am I? Well, I'm, I'm like, I'm a kind person. I'm a generous person. I'm a creative person. I'm a, and so I started looking at those aspects of myself. And when I am the best 
teacher, I'm bringing those best attributes of myself through that role. Does that make sense? So the roles can, can and do change. We lose jobs. Even some relationships change, right? But the core value of who I am, my core, these little, these gifts that I have inside of me of being creative, being compassionate, being this joyful kind of a person, that's who I am. That's who I am. So if my jobs change, when my jobs change, hello, coronavirus, then I can really, I can weather that storm because my feet are more strongly grounded now than they've ever been. And if I had to go through what I went through to learn that, I really wish I'd learned it the first time around. Maybe not. I'm going to do the second time around, but that's really my core focus now. And some of the, I'm doing some online courses and teaching workshops and teaching seminars to try to help other people. Cause I think that that's something that, especially in the entrepreneurial world, people don't, I mean, none of it, I don't know. I don't know where I would have learned that. I mean, I learned it in a sales class so that I wouldn't take rejection. So personally, you know, like in sales, a successful rate is like 30%. You know, if I only in baseball and sales, can you fail 30% of the time to be successful? Right. So in the sales course, it was trying to get people to not take rejection. So personally, because a lot of people drop out of sales because when someone says no to them, they take it personally. And in sales, I was really able to do that. Be like, if someone didn't want whatever I was selling, okay, it doesn't mean they didn't want me because they don't know anything about me. So it's like, I was able to do it in the sales world. So I tried to take that concept and just apply it to my life of, you know, what are these different roles that I play? How can I still stay strong and be true to who I am and start making a, a, a list of when do I feel most myself? And it could be something as simple as I have a neighbor who loves my dog, which I'm sure you heard in the background. He's, he's an, he's an older gentleman. He has Parkinson's. His, he, you know, he, his hands shake. He gets so excited when he sees my dog and he loves to pet her and throw ball with her. And I really noticed like how joyful I feel being able to like share this moment of happiness with somebody else. And I'm like, because that that's triggering that part of me that is kind and that is compassionate and that wants to bring joy to others. That's, that's who I am. So it could be as simple as making sure when I'm feeling crappy that I go take my dog for a walk, run into some, some random people. She's really cute. So she's going to make some people laugh and smile. She makes me laugh and smile. But finding those moments of when do I feel most like ignited that like that, that fire is burning, that like I'm in that zone. I know who I am, but I perform improv. That's performing me on stage. That's part of it. That's part of what feeds me. So just really paying attention to those moments so that I know when I'm feeling depleted, how to go back and fill back up. What is something that you're learning right now? That I still have a long way to go and that it's okay, that that's okay. Having been an entrepreneur and been working for myself for so long now, I realized that I, I wouldn't want to work for the boss that's in my head half of the time. One who I, the one who talks to myself so negatively, like you should be doing better. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. Like who wants to work for a boss? That's always mean to you. And, and if your boss is yourself, maybe you need to work on that. So it's, to me, it's like, it's a constant struggle. It's easy when I'm working for somebody else to complain about my boss. When I'm working for myself and complaining about my boss, I got some work to do. Something lighting you up right now. Ooh, oh God, I, I feel really fortunate to say so much working, doing these seminars, working with other people who, you know, I kept kind of kept this sort of list role identity thing to myself. Cause I was like, I'm sure I'm the only one who's kind of going through this. 
And then when I started sort of sharing it with other people, they're like, oh my God, yeah, I totally feel that way. I had a, one of my guy friends who was getting divorced say like, yeah, I don't know who I am outside of my marriage. Like I've been a dad and a, and a husband for so long. Like I'm, I'm just so, I feel lost. He's like, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And I was like, oh, not just me. And then friends who lost you know, the jobs or their careers significantly changed due to coronavirus that were also kind of feeling that same way. So, I mean, that's how I kind of started with a small group of people. Like if I were to teach you kind of like my process of like what I went through and I could save you hundreds of dollars in therapy, maybe if you went through some of this with me and to see them change, to see them experience the same kind of like rediscovering of who they are. Cause I don't think it's new. I think it's just something that we have to rediscover. We know it's there. We just maybe aren't paying attention to it. And it takes a while and it takes a commitment to wanting to be different, but it's that teacher part of me that gets so excited and so lit up and feel so grateful to be able to assist someone on that journey and know that, that my my path and my purpose has always been something to do with teaching. It doesn't matter if I'm teaching dance. It matters that I'm using the gift that I have as a teacher to continue to do something positive in this world. Well, what's something that most people don't know about you? That I'm a huge introvert. That even though I perform improv and that I can be super silly and that I teach dance and that I get really excited doing in the before times, like the more people in the audience, the better. I love public speaking. As soon as it's over, I'm like, okay, bye. I'd like to come home, curl up on my couch with my dog, be done. And what's a routine or something that you do often that brings you joy? My dance parties for one, because I just, I love moving and I, I know how much I, I love the way that feels. And I love music. And also, I mean, every day I take my dog out for a walk. She makes me laugh. She's super silly, but also watching how simple joys for like a pet, a dog, especially can bring them so much happiness, a ball, a cat in a box, a good reminder to be like, you don't need a whole lot of outside stuff to find joy. What advice would you give someone right now who's looking to reinvent themselves? (sighs) To reinvent yourself, it's going to take time. Be patient with yourself. And it's so worth the journey. Have you came up like with a word of what you want 2021 to be? I want 2020 to be full of clarity. There's so much confusion about, well, literally about everything right now. But if I can be clear on who I am and what value I have and what I bring to this world, then any outside thing that happens and is is going to happen and will always happen can't shake me. And if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give her? Go for it! Don't waste time worrying about what other people think. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. And where can people find you online? Website is easiest, jenables.com, one N-J-E-N-A-B-L-E-S.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.